Before we begin, I want to let you know that one of the locations mentioned in this episode is Corona del Sol High School. Yep, I get to say Corona repeatedly during the coronavirus or COVID-19 outbreak. It is just a weird coincidence, but I thought you would want to know what to expect before you settle in for the story. This week's episode, it's about an old murder, a murder you likely haven't heard of, the death of a young woman from Michigan. She was born and raised in the Detroit suburbs, but she died in Arizona. And her case has long been on my list of ones to cover. You're hearing it now for a couple of reasons. One, I got a really nice thick file back from the good people at Tempe Police in response to the Freedom of Information Act request I sent them. And two, as I read through this file, I realized that our victim, 23-year-old Gretchen White, she likely crossed paths with the subject of our last episode, Lori Dan. Because from 1978 to 1980, both of these women were students at Arizona State University. Lori Dan was known as Lori Wasserman back then, but Wasserman and White are the same age. The coincidence was too much for me to handle, so I pushed the murder of 23-year-old Gretchen White to the top of the pile, and here we are. So come with me to the warmth and light of the Arizona desert when a couple of maintenance men at the local high school make a grim discovery at the start of their workday. A discovery that will lead to heartbreak, anguish, and a decades-long search for a killer. Tempe, Arizona was founded, well, it was founded by white settlers in 1871, and it was named for the Vale of Tempe near Mount Olympus in Greece. Tempe sits on the edge of Phoenix and is best known as the home of Arizona State University. The university is nearly as old as the town itself. Arizona State started in 1885 as the Territorial Normal School, and it went through several name changes before becoming Arizona State University in 1958. Gretchen, whose case we are discussing today, she was the daughter of Maurice and Audrey White and the younger sister of Jeff. She grew up in Livonia. The White family home was on West Chicago near Wayne Road. It was a modest three-bedroom brick ranch in a neighborhood of similar homes, all built in the mid-1950s. Gretchen graduated from Bentley High School. If you are from the area and can't place Bentley High, that's because it's long gone. Bentley opened in the fall of 1947 and shut down in June of 1985. Any remnants of the original building were gone by 2001, and Livonia Recreation Center opened on that site in 2003. Gretchen was a shy and introverted young woman. She was also very pretty, which sometimes gave people the impression that she was, to use a term from the 80s, stuck up. She wasn't. Gretchen was just quiet. She kept to herself. Her friends described her as private and introverted. Gretchen was five foot six inches tall with a slender build. Her long blonde hair flowed past her shoulders, and she had wide blue eyes and a lovely smile. Her face was lightly dotted with freckles, and she was usually tan, taking full advantage of Arizona's abundant sunshine. When she finished high school, Gretchen yearned to go someplace warm and sunny, 
far from the gray of Michigan's weather. She chose Arizona State and spent her first two or three years of college life living on campus, either in dorms or residences. For her senior year, she opted for an off-campus apartment. She paid her way using money from part-time jobs, first working at a clothing store called Show-Offs, then switching jobs to a new place, Cloth World. She also babysat on occasion for extra income. Gretchen's degree, had she lived long enough to earn it, was in fashion merchandising. Working at a retail store fit well with her goals for the future. And during her senior year, Gretchen lived alone in a one-bedroom, garden-level apartment at 1330 West Broadway in Tempe. The location was perfect. It put her two miles from campus and four miles from work. The complex had a swimming pool, and Gretchen could regularly be seen sitting poolside with her school books soaking up the sun while she studied. The complex had seen some crime in recent months, including the sexual assault of a female resident in 1980, but it was considered a safe place to live, and Gretchen was always careful to lock her doors and not put herself at risk. Now, a garden apartment or a garden-level apartment, that's where about two-thirds of the apartment is below ground, and then the top third of the residence is above ground. So her windows in her apartment are at ground level, but they're regular size windows. On March 20th, 1981, police are summoned to Gretchen's complex, the Windbell Apartments, in the small hours of the night. A call is made by night watchman Ronald King. King was driving through the complex around 2.15 in the morning when he saw a man crouched in the bushes near an apartment window. When he spotted the man, King went to the office to call police and ask for an officer to respond to the area. When police arrive, King shows them the spot where he saw the man and notes a torn window screen. The patrolman doesn't like what they're seeing, and they ask King if he has a key to the unit since no one is answering the door. It turns out that King doesn't have a master key to unlock the door, and a decision is made to force the lock and gain entrance to the apartment. With the apartment open, the officers enter the unit and perform a sweep. They see that the television set is turned away from the seating area. It appears to have been moved to face the ironing board. On the dining room table, there are money and coins, an amount that will add up to about $35. The kitchen appears undisturbed, as does the bathroom. The bedroom, and it's a one-bedroom apartment, well, the bedroom is messy, but it's a lived-in messy. It is not a, there was a mortal struggle in this space messy. The area beneath the window with the cut screen does not look disturbed. There is a potted plant on a stand next to the window. Surely someone climbing in would have knocked that over. Is it possible that someone cut the screen attempting to enter the apartment and King scared them off? They check the closets, under the bed, everything appears to be in order, but the apartment is empty and the window screen is cut. Officers make a sweep of the area around the apartment. They check the bushes, the trash area, and the laundry room, but everything is in order. They aren't sure what to make of the situation, but it does not appear that there was a struggle or an assault in the apartment. Officers ask King about the tenant. He tells them it's a young woman. She's blonde, Caucasian. He's seen her around, but he hasn't met her. He thinks her name is Gretchen White. 
As he is talking with the officers, he is reminded of an incident a few weeks earlier where someone was banging on the same window saying, Gretchen, Gretchen, let me in. And Ms. White did open the door to the unit and grant this person access to the apartment. This event also happened in the small hours of the morning, like 2 or 2.30 a.m. As King shares this story with police, the people who live in the apartment above step outside to see what's going on. They will verify King's story about the incident two weeks earlier. Officers ask what they know about what happened at the apartment this evening, and they say that they heard a short scream. And when they looked outside a few minutes later, they saw who they thought was Gretchen White leaving her apartment with a fair-haired young man who was wearing, quote, white dungarees. After that, they heard a car start up and drive away. Officers have no sign of a crime, just the cut screen, and police decide there's nothing more to be done at Windbell Apartments that night. They will clear the scene just before 3 a.m. and return to duty, completing their shifts without incident. Meanwhile, 10 miles south at Corona del Sol High School, there is a two-tone Mercury Cougar with Michigan plates in the lot. The driver of the vehicle dumps something out on the ground, revs the engine, and drives away headed north, back to the Windbell apartment complex, where the cougar will be found in a few hours, not parked in its usual place. Around 6.30 a.m., it's a typical Friday morning at Corona del Sol High School. Custodians Mike Cranson and Bill Bergner start their shift. They are emptying trash cans around the campus in anticipation of arriving staff and students. As they work in the south parking lot near the tennis courts, they see what appears to be a dead animal in the lot. Is that a dead horse, or maybe it's a goat? As they approach for a better look, they realize that the large, blood-stained mess is the body of a woman in a white robe. She is slim and blonde. She has a gold wristwatch on one arm and a gold bracelet on the other. Her legs are splayed, and she is nude except for the robe. Her body has sustained horrific damage. The robe that she's clothed in is marred with grease and blood. The custodians immediately notify their supervisor and the police. They're concerned about students and gawkers, so they find something to cover the body with as they wait for police to arrive. Sergeant Stephen Grayling of the Tempe Police is among the first on scene. Grayling will notify detectives at their homes, advising them to report directly to the school. As Detective Palmer arrives, he takes in the scene. He starts taking notes. The unidentified female is in the center of the parking lot, laying on her left side. And while she's wearing a white bathrobe with black trim, the robe is bunched up around her waist, leaving her naked from the waist down. Her arms are splayed out, her right hand clenched in a fist. Her right leg, particularly the foot, ankle, and knee, have sustained crushing damage. It appears that not only was this person Left for dead, they were also run over by a vehicle. Using the best technology available to them at the time, Tempe police videotape the scene. They document the location of the body and the damage done to the remains. Officers begin a search of the parking lot, collecting anything that could be evidence. They note that there are no vehicles parked in this section of the lot. When they take a closer look at the body, they realize the unidentified woman was not only run over by a car, There was a ligature mark on her neck. She'd been strangled. Later, when her robe is examined, 
they will find a small string tie at the neck of the robe. This is likely what the killer used to strangle her. Before the body is removed from the scene, police ask the school principal and another staff member to take a look, to see if the young woman in the parking lot could be one of their students. And listeners, I know that the staff did this and that they did it willingly, but man, what an absolutely horrific task. I suspect, although it's not documented in the police file, that they asked the school to note any absent students, particularly if it was a female student who was blonde and stood about five foot six. One of the staffers who saw the unidentified woman mentions that the remains bear a resemblance to a former student someone who'd already graduated. Police are dispatched to the home of this former student so a welfare check can be performed. They arrive at the home of Lisa Willis, not her real name. That Lisa is in Las Vegas, she'd left on Saturday. Police ask for a description of Lisa, and the description offered by Lisa's mother is not a match to the body in the parking lot. Lisa's hair is a reddish blonde, and Lisa is a curvier girl than the victim in the parking lot. The officer who did the welfare check was at the school that morning. He saw the remains and felt that it was not a match, and he was right. By 10.30 a.m., about four hours after she was recovered, the body of the unidentified woman is collected by the mortuary for transport to the medical examiner. And we really need to give props to the M.E. here, because they did a really good job collecting evidence. They clip swab, scrape, photograph, and analyze every piece of evidence they can, and their evidence-gathering process is methodical. No stone left unturned, if you will. And as the ME is working on the body, police are combing through missing persons reports, not just from Tempe, but from neighboring cities as well. But they can't find anyone that matches their Jane Doe. It's nearly lunchtime when the manager of the Windbell Apartments, Lynn Grushko, calls Tempe police. She's concerned because the occupant of the apartment they responded to last night has still not returned. In her apartment, remember they had to break the lock to get in? It's not secure, so police are again dispatched to the location and they check the apartment to see if Gretchen is back. They notice photographs of Gretchen and compare them to a Polaroid taken of the Jane Doe at Corona Del Sol High School. From the apartment manager, they obtain contact and vehicle information on Gretchen White. When they search the lot for her car, a two-tone Mercury Cougar, they find it in the far corner of the lot, but it's nowhere near her apartment or her usual parking spot. The car is checked out and police see a purse on the floorboard, on the passenger side. The car is unlocked. The keys to the Mercury are in the ignition. When they look inside the purse, it has a wallet, which contains ID for Gretchen White. As they take a look at the car, they see blood spatter on the passenger side wheel well. The plate and vehicle description on file with the apartment determines that this car belongs to Gretchen White. A call is made. They want the vehicle towed to the maintenance yard for a thorough examination. When they get the car up on a lift, and this is just Ugh, awful. They find long strands of blonde hair twined around the tire rod on the driver's side, as well as wrapped around the right rear brake cable. There is blood spatter on the undercarriage of the car. Gretchen White wasn't just murdered, she was raped, strangled, and then run over with her own vehicle. 
As they search inside the car, they find a beige woman's bra that's been torn in half. They also find tons of other bits and pieces from receipts to cigarette butts to napkins, takeout menus, bits of candy. Gretchen's car was not any tidier than her apartment. And that's not a dig at Gretchen. It's just you don't pay attention to these things. I have a messy car, and the last thing that I think is that the police are going to go through it. If they do, they're going to find a lot of dog hair. At this point, police decide it's time for another talk with Ronald King, the night security officer for the Windbell apartment complex. When they sit down with him, it's almost 8 o'clock on Friday night. This case is in its infancy. It's not even 14 hours old. They ask King to walk them through the events of last night. What led him to seeing a man outside of her apartment? And he tells them that he'd received a complaint around 2 a.m. that someone was using the swimming pool in the neighboring Coronado apartments, which he also worked for. So King got up, he dressed, he drove to the Coronado and told the swimmers, look guys, it's 2 a.m., go home. As King is returning to his own place, he sees an unknown male, about six feet tall, blonde hair, standing near the apartment of Ms. White. King puts his vehicle in reverse, intending to confront the man. He approached the apartment on foot and saw the screen laying on the ground, so he went to the apartment office to call the police and report a burglary. He said he was away from the building making the call for about five minutes, and the police arrived five minutes after that. When the apartment was found to be empty, King and the officers contacted the residents above White's apartment, who reported hearing a scream. And it appears to police that if King is telling the truth, then he saw the man who kidnapped, assaulted, and murdered Gretchen White. And King tells the police he didn't take it very seriously because there'd just been an incident at White's apartment two weeks earlier, where a man, who was thought to be one of Gretchen's boyfriends, knocked at her window and called for her to let him in. Tempe's a college town. College students do dumb stuff. Police ask King to give his fingerprints for comparison to any prints found in White's apartment and vehicle, and he cooperated fully. And speaking of fingerprints, police are able to confirm the identity of the body found at Corona del Sol High School by comparing her fingerprints to prints left on a glass in Gretchen White's apartment. They were a match. Their Jane Doe has a name. And police have a busy weekend ahead of them tracking down her killer. Little do they know. This investigation is not going to take days or weeks. It's going to take decades. As police now have a name for their victim, 23-year-old Arizona State University senior Gretchen White, they also have all of the evidence and clues from her apartment to work off of. They start with her address books. She had more than one, and they contain names and numbers for dozens of people. Police want to track down Gretchen's friends, the people that know her best. And they soon learn that Gretchen is shy. She's quiet and private. She doesn't have a large social circle. She has a lot of acquaintances, but few who know her well. But it doesn't take long to learn the name of her boyfriend, a fellow Arizona State University student. We're not going to use his name. I will be referring to him as Mac Richards. When police contact Mac, they ask him to come in for an interview and to leave a set of fingerprints which he agrees to voluntarily. During the interview, Mac tells police that he has known Gretchen for three years and they've been dating off and on. He describes their relationship as, quote, very close. 
Max says that the last time he saw Gretchen was about 6 a.m. on March 19th. He'd spent the night at her place, but had not seen her since. Police want to know where he was the night of the 20th. They want to know his alibi. Who's going to vouch for him? Mac tells them that he went to bed around 11 p.m. in the house that he shares with several roommates. The house, located on East Driftwood in Tempe, is about five miles from Gretchen's apartment. He tells police that his roommates were home watching a movie until three in the morning, and they could vouch for him being home at the time Gretchen was taken. Police then talk to Nora Chase, not her real name, who considered herself a good friend of Gretchen's. Chase tells police that, yes, Gretchen was dating Mac, but there was trouble in the relationship. Because the previous summer and fall, Mac had been seeing another girl, Rita. When Gretchen learned he was seeing Rita on the side, she was furious. But in time, she softened and started dating him again, but but the relationship was not the same after that. It just wasn't as serious. Nora tells police she knew Gretchen from the fraternity system. They were both little sisters of a fraternity. She described Gretchen as nervous, anxious, and that Gretchen always parked her car, the Mercury Cougar, in the same stall near her apartment. Police worked really hard on this. They tracked down a lot of people, including a couple that she was known to babysit for. They talked to her co-workers at Cloth World. The co-workers described her as quiet and pleasant, but none of them knew her well. Gretchen's neighbors were interviewed. They said that Gretchen was quiet and reserved. But her upstairs neighbors, the ones who spoke with police the night she was taken, they had additional details. These neighbors, Edward and Lita Galaskis, they said they were awakened around 2.20 by a thud from the apartment below. They then heard a gasp from Gretchen's apartment, and then male and female voices raised. The voices quieted, but continued for a few minutes. When Lita went to the window and looked outside, she said she saw what she thought was her neighbor Gretchen and the unknown man exiting the apartment complex. Lita tells police she wasn't wearing her glasses, so she couldn't be completely sure that it was Gretchen, but she thought it was. Edward Galaskis said that when he looked at the clock, as he settled back into bed, it was 2.32 a.m. A few minutes later, he heard Tempe police at the scene and got to speak with them. So, based on the timeline provided by King and the Galaskis couple, It seems like this happened really quickly. The guy cut the screen, broke into her apartment, argued briefly with Gretchen, and then led her outside in a matter of three to five minutes. And what timing. It's just amazing that he wasn't caught by King or by arriving officers. On March 24th, 1981, police are called back to Corona del Sol High School because something weird has happened. When they arrive, one of the custodians, a Jesse Avena, is waiting for them. He explains that he found a plate of fruit in the parking lot near where Gretchen's body was left a few days earlier. He'd thrown the plate and the fruit in the trash, but when he mentioned it to a co-worker, they thought that maybe the police should be notified. So the fruit was retrieved from the trash and taken to the school office where it waited for police to examine it. The plate, which is described as a styrofoam plate in three sections, had two red apples, a green apple, an orange, and three bananas. Now, a check is made comparing the cafeteria plates to the plate found near the school, but they're not a match. 
The high school plates are also styrofoam, but they're in five sections, not three. Police take the fruit and the plate into evidence. They collect fingerprints. And I don't know what became of the fruit or why someone left a plate of fruit near the scene. It's just this really weird aspect of a very strange case. On March 25th, 1981, in the dark days years prior to DNA testing, Mac Richards is served a court order. They want his saliva and samples of his hair. Richards complies, but he also hires a lawyer. Looking through the file, Gretchen's friends will tell police they thought it was really strange that Mac Richards does not attend Gretchen's funeral. Gretchen was from Michigan, that's where her whole family was, and she's at school out in Arizona. I couldn't determine where the funeral was held. Was it in Arizona or was it in Michigan? I can't find any mention of it at any of my usual sources. Gretchen and her family, they don't have a listing in Find a Grave, so it's hard to know. If the funeral was in Michigan, I don't think it's that strange that Mac didn't go to Michigan for the funeral in the middle of the semester. If the funeral was in Arizona, yeah, that's pretty weird. He should have attended his girlfriend's funeral. Meanwhile, Mac Richards' housemates, well, they're all telling police the same thing. They don't actually like Mac, but he's got money and he's got a boat and he helps pay rent on the house. When his housemates are asked if Mac could have murdered Gretchen, they respond, maybe, possibly. They aren't sure. From what I read in the police file, not one of the people he lived with went, no way, there's no way Mac could have done this. They're all like, he could have? But they're not sure. What they are sure of is that the night of the murder, they left the house on Driftwood without Mac, and they went to a bar, the Devil's House. And listeners, if the name of the bar, the Devil's House, freaks you out a little bit, remember, the Arizona mascot is a sun devil. So his friends go to this bar around 11 o'clock and return to the rental house they shared with Mac around 1 a.m. One of his housemates, we'll call him Danny, Danny said that Mac could have left the house without anyone knowing. And Danny said he liked Gretchen and that if he had information on her murder, he would come forward right away. Police don't have a ton of evidence, they don't have a lot of suspects, and they have nothing to push an arrest, so the murder of Gretchen White goes cold. In 1987, her mother, Audrey, passes away. Now, I believe that Audrey White's cause of death was cancer, but I would guess she also died of a broken heart. As technology improves, police start pulling out evidence again. When they realize that aside from hair and saliva collected from Mac Richards in 1981, they have little biological evidence from potential suspects, detectives pick up the phone, they start making calls, they are tracking people down. It's been more than a decade since the murder, so police have to track down her college friends and really start the process from scratch. Mac and his housemates are contacted, as well as other men that Gretchen White knew when she was living in Arizona. Her co-workers at Cloth World, they are also contacted, and calls are made to evidence storage. Those swabs and scrapings that were meticulously collected in 1981 when she was autopsied, those are pulled out. They need to be tested again. Police are hoping that they'll get a hit. They're also hoping that the DNA they have available is solid enough for the National CODIS databank, but it's not. 
So the DNA profile they have for Gretchen's case is uploaded to the Arizona CODIS system. And as these new detectives are looking at the evidence and reading the file, they have one frustrating piece of evidence that they cannot access, the videotape of the crime scene, the recording of Gretchen's body splayed in the Corona del Sol parking lot. The tape also had a view of her apartment, but they can't see it because nobody has a machine that can watch a tape that's nearly 20 years old. So inquiries are made about sending the tape out to be converted to digital. Nothing. Nobody can do it. One out-of-state agency offers to try, but they can't guarantee that the videotape won't be destroyed in the process. While looking at the crime scene from 1981 would be a benefit to officers, they won't get to see it. It's a frustrating dead end for investigators. In 2003, Maurice White, Gretchen's father, passes away. Her older brother, Jeff, is the only surviving member of the White family. It was in 2005 that things start picking up. Tempe police took what evidence they had in the case, the swabs and combings from Gretchen's postmortem in 1981, and have them analyzed one more time. One of the first things they did was compare DNA from Gretchen's rape kit with DNA provided by her boyfriend, Mac Richards. The profile of Mac Richards was excluded as being a match. Her college sweetheart, the person that many thought could be responsible for her murder, is ruled out as a suspect in the summer of 2006. In 2012, 30 years after Gretchen's body was found in a high school parking lot, the case is still open. The evidence is gone through again. And as I sorted through the file and listeners, Tempe police did not skimp. I received a stack of paperwork that was an inch and a half thick, which makes it easy for me to track the efforts of the investigators and confirm for you how hard they worked on her case. They pulled her file out every couple of years for another go. They even tried to interview Gretchen's neighbors, Edward and Lita Galaskas, but Edward passed away in 2000, and Lita's story was unchanged. So police go through the file again. They're starting from scratch again, and they look at everyone associated with Gretchen. In the file, they find information about a rape that happened in Gretchen's apartment complex on August 2nd, 1980. This rape is also open and unsolved. They look for additional information on the person they liked for the case, and the victim's description of her attacker matched the description given by Mr. King in Gretchen's case. Unfortunately, there was no biological evidence, so they could not do a comparison between Gretchen's murder and this unresolved assault from 1980. The good news is that Gretchen's case will be solved, not with a bang, but with a whimper. No one kicked in a door and dragged a man out of his home. There was no breaking news story about it. The resolution came quietly. In 2016, DNA on file in Arizona, collected from prisoners, was matched against the DNA specimen in Gretchen's murder. 35 years after Gretchen White was taken from her apartment, raped, strangled, and run over with her car, police have a name. James R. Carlson. That's him. That's the guy who murdered Gretchen. She didn't know him. He wasn't a friend or an old boyfriend. He didn't work with her. He wasn't taking classes with her. James Carlson was? Well, I I don't usually talk like this on the podcast, but James Carlson was a complete piece of shit. 
He was 19 years old when he broke into Gretchen's apartment in the spring of 1981. Unfortunately, the law won't catch up with him until 1986 when he's picked up on unrelated charges. And here's what we know about Carlson, and honestly, I'm surprised at how little is out there about him. In 1981, at the time of Gretchen's kidnapping, assault, and murder, James Carlson was about 20, and it's likely that he had a juvenile record, but he'd been out of trouble long enough that he was not on the radar of law enforcement on the night that Gretchen was forced from her home. In fact, Carlson would not get into any serious trouble until 1986, when he's brought up on fraud charges. Then, in May of 1991, when Carlson, who's now almost 30, is arrested near his home in Scottsdale. In the one brief press clipping available, police reveal that Carlson is, quote, one of Tempe's most wanted. He is suspected as being a local cat burglar responsible for multiple rapes, assaults, and break-ins at Tempe apartments that are occupied by single women. Tempe Police Sergeant L. Taylor described Carlson as a dangerous, vicious man. You see, during some of the burglaries, Carlson broke in, found the woman's checkbook, sexually assaulted the woman, and then fled. While he's arrested in May of 1991, it'll be almost two years until he appears in court as Tempe builds a case against him. When he finally has a hearing in October of 93, He tells the court that he has multiple personality disorder and that he, James Carlson, cannot be held responsible for the attacks because, you see, the violence was perpetrated by one of his other personalities. These personalities, including Woofy, Jim, and James, will be sworn in during the hearing and each will offer testimony. James Carlson said that while one of his personalities, Jim, confessed to the crimes, He, James Carlson, cannot be held responsible for what these other entities did. Now, we're going to have a quick little history lesson here. In 1994, the DSM-4 was released. And if you aren't familiar with the DSM, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. In 1994, I was working on a psychiatric unit, and I remember the fanfare surrounding the release of the new DSM. And the reason that I'm mentioning it here is that in 1994, with the new DSM, they no longer viewed multiple personality disorder as a diagnosis. So multiple personality disorder, or MPD, is now dissociative identity disorder, DID. Views on mental health were changing in the 1990s, and this shift was part of it. Like with MPD, DID is closely linked to childhood trauma. James Carlson will seize upon this and report that he was molested at age six. You see, people with MPD and DID are usually raised by parents that are unpredictable, unreliable, and quick to anger. People with MPD or DID have an unstable upbringing, which contributes to their using DID as a coping mechanism. James Carlson will insist to the court and to his court-appointed attorney that this is him. He has multiple personalities. He was abused as a child, so he cannot be held criminally responsible for his actions. When his trial begins at the end of 1993, Carlson is leaning into the multiple personality defense. In fact, his public defender will tell the court that her client was present when these brutal crimes took place, 
but he's not responsible because you see, it wasn't him. It was another personality. She will tell the court that Carlson had not four, but 15 personalities, including a 17-year-old female prostitute and a shy 24-year-old man named Bud Bundy, just like the character on Married with Children. The abuse that Carlson endured as a child, the molestation, he was beaten by his father, his parents had a contentious divorce, and then after the divorce, he relocated to Hawaii with his dad and stepmom. And then while he was in Hawaii as a teenager, he was abusing alcohol and marijuana. And that these other personalities, they began to emerge as he entered puberty. And listeners, as if a rape case is not traumatic enough for the victims, Carlson will don a wig and a feminine sweater and testify as one of his alters, a young woman named Lori Burke. You see, Burke is the name of the 17-year-old female prostitute alter identity that lives inside of James Carlson. Oh, and during testimony, it comes out that Lori Burke is a 17-year-old lesbian prostitute. Lori will describe herself for the court, saying that she's 5 foot 4, 120 pounds with thick dark hair. James Carlson is 32 years old, 6 feet tall with an average build and thinning blonde hair and glasses. Lori tells the court that she's testifying to protect Jim, the altar inside of James Carlson who committed the crimes. Jim will not come out and testify for himself. I'm looking at this photo of James Carlson dressed as Lori Burke. The photo ran in the Arizona Republic newspaper. I will post the photo in our Facebook group if you want to have a look at it. In order to become Lori Burke, Carlson was allowed to use a private room near the judge's chambers to prepare himself. Court officers said it took Carlson almost two hours to get ready before Lori took the stand. And I am so frustrated by this because I feel like Carlson was abusing the court for his own means, and that when the court allowed this to happen, it was, at the absolute minimum, disrespectful to the victims, the women that James Carlson attacked and brutalized. There is some good news here because Carlson will be found guilty of all charges and sentenced to 83 years in prison. The reason, or at least part of the reason, that Judge Martha Hendricks sentenced Carlson to such a long sentence is that Carlson held a press conference after he was found guilty, but before the sentencing. And at this press conference, he admits it's all fake. He was just trying to get out of long prison sentence. He was trying to protect himself. Also, and I'm sure this influenced the sentencing as well, two of the women who were assaulted by Carlson spoke at the sentencing and asked that he receive a long term in prison. James Carlson was doing whatever he could to avoid going to prison. His attorney, public defender Anna Unterberger, had asked Judge Hendricks not to watch the press conference held by her client, but the judge did see part of it and that influenced her decision to send Carlson away for a very long time. Hendricks said that all defendants have the right to a fair trial, but they do not have a right to make a mockery of the judicial process. And looking back at what he did during this trial, He definitely made a mockery of the process. It was in February of 2016, some 25 years after James Carlson was terrorizing the women of Tempe, Arizona, that his name made its way into the murder file of Gretchen White, the introverted Arizona State University student who was forced from her home, raped and murdered, then run over by her own car, the Mercury Cougar, the vehicle her father worked hard to pay for, 
so that his daughter had reliable transportation so far from her home and family in Michigan. The detective who handled Gretchen's case received a call from Bode Selmark Forensic Laboratory in Dallas, Texas. The lab had news about Gretchen's case. And listeners, I told you that I received a thick file on the murder of Gretchen White, more than an inch of paperwork for me to read and sort through. And there it was, one line toward the end of the file, cleared by arrest. As of this writing, James Carlson is in his 60s, and it's likely he will never stand trial for the murder of Gretchen White. He will never have to answer for the way that she died or how her body was dumped in a school parking lot and then cruelly run over with her own car. James Carlson is going to die behind bars, a guest of the Arizona prison system, which, I think we can agree, is exactly where he belongs. In my opinion, it is unlikely that Gretchen White was the only woman who died at the hands of James Carlson. Just as we know that the two women whose rapes he was tried for, those aren't the only women he assaulted. And while we can laugh at the audacity of his defense and the gymnastics he performed attempting to escape responsibility for his actions, I'm going to rest a little easier knowing that Carlson will never, ever see the light of day again. And if you're like me, you might be having trouble sleeping during this difficult time. Please check out my other podcast, Dreaming with Nina. It's a storytelling podcast which is designed to soothe you into a good night's sleep. There are three episodes available, and episode four will be released shortly. Already Gone will return on May 15th with a long-awaited story, The Disappearance of Paige Renkowski from May of 1990. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.